are you a privileged person? That is, are you truly blessed? That's the fundamental question that lies behind our featured sermon this week. The privileged man, delivered on 31st of May, a Sunday morning in 1868, by Charles Haddon Spurgeon at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in Newington. The sequence of sermons we're looking at this week is 808 to 814, and this is Sermon 813, 813. If you want to know more about this reading scheme, then you can find us on mediagratii.org slash podcasts, where you can also sign up for a weekly newsletter containing a link to the featured sermon. My name is Jeremy Walker, and I'm your guide in the world of Charles Haddon Spurgeon as we walk our way through the sermons that he preached, taking each week a representative sermon as an attempt to find out more about how this man of God graced and gifted by the Holy Spirit, was able to preach Christ and him crucified in a way that won the ears and the hearts of multitudes in his day and ever since. His text on this particular occasion is Ezekiel chapter 16 verses 9 to 14, a fairly lengthy text for Spurgeon. This is it in its entirety as he gives it in the sermon. Then washed I thee with water, yea, I throughly washed away thy blood from thee, and I anointed thee with oil. I clothed thee also with broidered work, and shod thee with badger skins, and I girded thee about with fine linen, and I covered thee with silk. I decked thee also with ornaments, and I put bracelets upon thy hands, and a chain on thy neck. And I put a jewel on thy forehead, and earrings in thine ears, and a beautiful crown upon thine head. Thus wast thou decked with gold and silver, and thy raiment was of fine linen and silk and broidered work. Thou didst eat fine flour and honey and oil, and thou wast exceeding beautiful, and thou didst prosper into a kingdom. And thy renown went forth among the heathen for thy beauty, for it was perfect through thy comeliness, which I had put upon thee, saith the Lord God. This is a fascinating sermon for Spurgeon's uh, hermeneutical and exegetical approach. By hermeneutics, we we mean his principles of interpretation. By exegesis, we mean his uh, working out of the text and, and dealing with its particular phrases and details, his explanation and his application of what this part of the scripture really means. He works really on two levels in this sermon. He, he begins with Ezekiel 16 and the Lord's description of his gracious dealings with Abraham, making the point that Abraham was originally a lone man. His family and dependents formed a small tribe wandering through the plains of Canaan and God selected him, God separated him, calling him out and he uh, appointed him in grace to become the nation that he would be pleased to bless and through whom he would bring his Messiah into the world. It was to them that his law was given. He made them the custodians of his law. His worship was kept up among them. And while they were faithful to him, he says, they were a happy and a prosperous people. So here is the, uh, the first level, if you will, that this is Abraham. This is uh, the blessing that God bestowed upon him. It's a, a metaphorical description of God's choosing and blessing that particular man. 
Now, Spurgeon's first step, his first level down, is there when he says, All that God did for his Israel was but a type and shadow of what he has done for his own beloved and redeemed ones, whom he has distinguished beyond all men that dwell upon the face of the earth. So his first step is to work from uh, Israel as Abraham's physical descendants to the spiritual Israel as Abraham's spiritual descendants, saying that, yes, there were fulfillments certainly for Abraham's physical seed, but then in Christ you have those who are uh, descended from believing Abraham in, in that spiritual line and sense. So what he wants us to do is to begin with this first step. And he asks us, O oh, you sons of God, as he calls us, to contemplate the bounties of the Lord towards his people, and then secondly, for a short time, to draw reflections from your contemplations. Let us then, he says, each man for himself, sitting in this house before the Lord, review the Lord's loving kindness and contemplate the amazing bounties which have come to us from the blessed fount of his grace. And this is where he steps down to the, the second level, where all the imagery that was in that text, which was, if you remember, already in some way symbolic in terms of the way that the Lord dealt with Abraham, is now lifted up and carried across in its symbolism to the, the people of God in the new covenant. So you've got symbolic and typical steps. Uh, uh, old covenant Israel as the type of new covenant Israel and the symbolism as it was applied to Abraham's physical descendants also being lifted up and carried across and applied as symbolic language to Abraham's spiritual descendants, those who are trusting in Christ under the new covenant. So you need to keep both those levels of interpretation in mind. First of all, the typical shift, the shift in the type or the shadow, and then the symbolic transference from the symbols as applied to Abraham and his physical descendants to the symbols as applied to God's beloved and redeemed ones whom he has brought to himself through Jesus Christ. So I hope you can keep those two levels in mind. It will help us as we work our way through these two points. First of all, what has God done in blessing his people? And secondly, what reflections should we draw from this? And the bulk of this sermon is going to be in that uh, dealing with the first the first point, the, the way in which God has blessed his people. In this, I think Spurgeon owes uh, something of a debt, at least uh, thematically, to someone like John Bunyan, perhaps some of the other Puritans, maybe Benjamin Keach, who were very uh, adept, you might say they sometimes pushed it too far, but they spent a lot of time and, and devoted a lot of holy imagination to the types and the metaphors of the Bible. So Spurgeon begins, and here's the parallel. Remember what Abraham was when he was found. Remember what you were when divine loving kindness pitched upon you effectually and you knew its power experimentally in your own consciences. 
you were in yourself no more worthy of God's attention than Abraham was when the Lord first set his love upon him. Blessed be God that when we were lost and lost forever, sovereign mercy interposed. And now Spurgeon begins to work his way through that text and he's picking up the language, the imagery, the symbols as he goes through and he's applying them in the new covenant context. So one of the first gifts of the divine favour is washing. Then I washed thee with water, yea, I throughly washed away thy blood from thee. So it's this image of God finding the infant in the wilderness covered in blood and they were washed. Remember, beloved, says Spurgeon, when you were first washed, recall the hour when, believing in Jesus Christ, you felt in a moment that you were saved. What bliss was crowded into that hour? Your acceptance in the Beloved was sealed upon your heart by the Holy Spirit. You enjoyed a peace with God which passed all understanding, the result of pardoned sin. Remember that day of blessing and be grateful. Spurgeon wants people to understand that that you are washed this morning, that you are cleansed through the blood of Jesus Christ. It is a perfect justification, he says. How shall I prize thee enough? O perfect pardon, what shall I compare with thee? These two things put together are enough to make a heaven upon earth, even to the most disconsolate and afflicted of the sons of men. You see how he's uh, picking up then this, this language Uh, and applying it to the washing that we obtain through the blood of the Lord Jesus. The next mercy, he says, is anointing. There it is in the text. I anointed thee with oil. One of the first instincts of a forgiven sinner, he says, is to become a servant in the house of his pardoning God. And the anointing is the, the imagery that is used of the setting apart to service in the Old Testament. And Spurgeon is picking that up carrying it over and reminding us that we are saints who are priests and kings unto God. Though by nature sinners who would have been in hell but for divine grace, you are now made priests to God today to minister before his throne. So whatever your form of ministry may be, you go about it as an anointed priest. You pray and you serve as one whom God has called and equipped and set apart for that service. But our Heavenly Father stops nowhere when he once begins to lavish forth his mercy. He abounds in his loving kindnesses, and therefore you need to look at the next covenant mercy, that the Lord clothes his people. And here Spurgeon needs to break it down a little bit more. First it is said, I clothed thee with broidered work. And this is where he really starts to to stretch the terms of the, the symbolic language and the metaphorical Uh, interpretation. The wisdom of our God was exercised about the way of justifying a sinner. Great thoughts of Jehovah went about the methods of making unrighteous ones righteous and causing the unjust to become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. In the robe then with which Christ has covered us, and you can see how he's drawing then this language and this imagery from various parts of the scripture, it is impossible to say which of the divine attributes are most to be seen. There is justice for all that the law demands it receives in the sacrifice of Jesus, and his mercy is equally manifest, for he passeth by transgression, iniquity, and sin. 
There is his power sustaining the Saviour while at the same time he smites him. There is his wrath boiling forth against iniquity and his love resplendent like a fair jewel in the midst of all. This, says Spurgeon, is the broidered work with which we are clothed. You see how the image is being applied. How God with uh, with what he calls a cunning twist and wise device, a dainty piece of curious work. What he means is there's craft and there's skill and there's uh, insight and there's wisdom that's gone into making this incredible robe of righteousness that is fit for us. What skill, what wisdom, what power, what grace are blended in the robe of righteousness with which God has covered his people. Child of God, says the preacher, you're wearing that today. And if Jacob put on Joseph a garment of many colours because he loved him better than his brothers, stand up and think what a garment your heavenly father has put on you because he loves you so well. Then, the next thing, he shod thee with badger's skin. Spurgeon says it's definitely not the animal we call a badger, but some creature found, I suppose, abundantly in the wilderness. And he says that uh, whatever this is, the leather seems to have been the softest, best and most durable to be found. And then he's thinking again that God uh, puts on our feet the the gospel of grace. It's that kind of language. He says, uh, yeah, we need to think in terms of the wilderness experience. We need to think in terms of the gospel that we have. Believer, you have the best grace, the best righteousness, the best assistance that you can possibly imagine in order to bring you safely to the right hand of God at the last. If you're thinking, you know, how's he doing this and where's he getting this from? We'll try and touch on that before we get right to the end. But let's move on. The text says again, I girded thee about with fine linen. He says, you've got the broidered robe, you've got the shoes on your feet, Believe in the gifts which the covenant of grace secures you and rest in Jesus Christ, who is made of God unto you wisdom, righteousness, sanctification and redemption. He's getting carried away. He says, I need to talk about the linen, the purity of the righteousness with which God gives us, which God gives to us. Linen, white and fair. Again, remember, he's getting this from uh, the, uh, the, the, the dress of the priests. I think he's also pointing forward to the... Uh, the the revelation the book of revelation where the the linen is what the the saints in heaven are clothed in and the last one is i covered thee with silk he says silk doesn't appear to have been used in his time so what's he talking about it's something close enough a royal fabric soft and delicate but rarely seen an imperial material i covered thee with silk Here is the glory of the believer, such that even angels who have been used to supernal splendor shall be amazed as they look upon the redeemed when covered with the righteousness of Christ. And this isn't all, he says. Remember where he's gone so far. You've got the washing, you've got the anointing, you've got the clothing broken down into these four things. And now you've got that he decks us. Now where I come from, that means he hits you and knocks you to the floor. Here, it means to to deck someone out. It means to uh, adorn them with all kinds of ornamentation. And he does the same thing, but he's not got the same amount of time. So he runs again through the text. I've put bracelets upon thy hands. The believer being saved becomes a worker. And when he works with the bracelets of faith and love upon his hands, how fair a worker he becomes. And Christian, 
You have this honor. You work for God, trusting in God. You work for God, loving God, having no motive to constrain you but that of disinterested affection. It means you've got no uh, vested interest in that sense. You're, you're not biased in any sense. You're, you're, your affection is pure and not attached to any inferior motive. And then there's a chain on your neck. What is this, he says, but the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, when that neck which once would not bend, a stiff and rebellious neck, now bows itself before the Lord and wears the easy yoke of Christ. Then you've got the jewel upon the forehead, or perhaps the nose jewel, what he calls an open confession of the Lord, the forehead jewel of a holy boldness and a conscience that gives an answer for itself, meekly, but yet without fear of men. Then there are earrings in your ears, the two which I let you see, he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and I fo and they follow me. That's the best earring to wear in the world. And then there's the, the earring of this discernment. A stranger will they not follow. So you've got affection and discernment. And then the beautiful crown upon thy head. God doesn't stop halfway. His people shall wear the best of the best and all of the best. You belong to heaven's true aristocracy, he says. There's nothing then, trying to sum up some of these things, which you could wish for when in your spiritual senses, which you have not already got. All your capacious powers can wish is given you in the covenant of grace. If imagination should take her utmost stretch and fly upon the wings of the morning to the uttermost ends of all conception, yet could she not compass nor dream of what God has prepared for them that love him. Only the Spirit can reveal to you these depths of mercy, these treasures of loving kindness, these mountains of mercy, these hills of frankincense. And he says, that's just what we've got now. If the present is good, oh, how good, the future is far better and how much better. Beyond the river there comes the best of all. Our wine does not grow weaker toward the end of the feast, but he has kept the best wine until the last. And oh, what will it be to drink at the table of the King Eternal, draughts of his blessed love, in the place where sin and trouble shall never come to intervene and break our peace? This, then, is how Spurgeon addresses these things. Let me pause now just briefly before we get to the applications, because they themselves are, are quite brief and to the point, to say, you may be listening to this and saying, I don't think that's how you can handle the text of Scripture, and that's your prerogative. What I want to emphasize is it is how Spurgeon thinks he both can and should handle the text of Scripture. The, the issue at this, at this juncture is not whether or not it's good or bad or right or wrong. Uh, at least that's not the question I'm trying to answer. But that Spurgeon is very consistent in approaching it like this, and that he has a particular method. Now, I've only just been able to, to draw out a few of those images at various points uh, and to draw attention to one or two of them. But what I want to emphasize is that there is consistency and coherence and continuity in the way that Spurgeon deals with this imagery. What he does is when he has, for example, the uh, the, the shoes on the feet or the, the linen that they wear, when he thinks about the, the chain on the neck or the bracelets on the hand, when he considers the washing or when he thinks about the anointing, 
what he's doing is almost getting this panoramic sense of that language or that image, that symbol, as it's found in the whole of the scriptures, both the Old and the New Testaments. And that's what gives him the bridge, not just from uh, the, the symbolism as it's applied to Abraham, but the symbolism as it's applied to the New Covenant Israel, as opposed to Abraham's physical descendants. Now, again, the issue isn't whether or not Spurgeon thinks there's a there's a hope for national Israel. Uh, typically, he, he assures us that that is what he does believe. But what he's doing here is to trace out this kind of language, this kind of picture, as it's found throughout the whole of the Scriptures, and he draws it down together. Now, I may think that once or twice he's pushing this a little bit too far. Uh, there are times when I'm I'm impressed, but I, I still raise an eyebrow. But my point again is that he is doing this carefully. This is not some kind of wild notion. This is not some uh, unreined and unanchored fancy in the preacher. He knows his whole Bible. For example, just to remind you, that, that linen imagery, the priests wear those linen undergarments. When you come to the glory, you have the, the saints who are dressed in linen, clean and white, which are their righteous deeds. So when he reads of God clothing Abraham and his descendants symbolically in linen, and having transferred that imagery to God's new covenant people, he is very careful on one level in bringing that kind of imagery to bear upon us and trying to trace out its spiritual sense and meaning. So I think it's important, and I, I think I've made this point before, Spurgeon is very quickly in some circles dismissed for a shoddy hermeneutic, a careless exegesis, uh, a sort of a slapdash hyper-spiritualization of the text. And if that's what you think, you're entitled to think it. But at least do him the honour and give him the credit of acknowledging what he's doing and what he knows himself to be trying to do. So when he warns in lectures to my students against spiritualization of the text, he doesn't think that that's what he's doing here. He's not being inconsistent. What he thinks he's doing is reading into the types and the shadows and the metaphors of Scripture, extrapolating from those as they, they extend across the whole of God's inscripturated revelation and bringing that to bear in terms of its, its underlying spiritual sense for the benefit of God's people. And I think that's worth us thinking about today because it's so quickly and easily dismissed, and because it's so rarely done, and rarely done as, as well and as consistently as Spurgeon does it here. You still may not like it, you still may not do it, you still may think it's unwise or even illegitimate, but I think it's worth understanding just how skillful Spurgeon is in applying his principles to this particular text. So I hope that's of some use, because what it does now is it actually underpins the second point of this sermon, where Spurgeon draws two or three reflections from this. So 
Spurgeon wants us to enter in to this text. And he says, I was sitting down before the Lord in quiet this afternoon, reading this passage, turning over sentence by sentence, and I think the emotion of my soul would express itself in words like these. What am I and what is my father's house that you have brought me to this point? And what is this to me? Why me, Lord? Why me? If you depreciate divine mercies, if you downplay them and undervalue them, you will not marvel that you receive them. Appreciate them at their proper estimate and you will wonder and weep and wonder and love and wonder and adore that ever such an unworthy thing as you should be so singularly favoured. And you notice again how that would be just as true for God's new covenant people as it would have been for Abraham's physical descendants. Now he says, that's what I want you to do when you go home. That's what I would wish to do if I were sitting down quietly thinking through these things during the afternoon. Now, I want to move on because that's for your closet rather than for my pulpit. In other words, that's for your private meditation rather than my public instruction. He expects us to work with this in our own time. More publicly, what a wretched return have we made to God for these amazing benefits bestowed. Again, he wants us to contemplate the spiritual riches that have been given to us under cover of this kind of, this kind of imagery. Such is the debt we owe to God, he says, that if we spend all the strength we have morning, noon and night and wear ourselves out in the master's service and had we 50 such lives to give and ended them all at the stake, yet still the sacrifice were as nothing compared to what is due to the infinite majesty of the love of God. He says it's good for us to, to contemplate such a catalogue of mercies as are presented to us here. We need to understand what God has done and how God has blessed us and the price of that blessing. You notice perhaps, or, or maybe you didn't as we work through that, how often he's tying back those things to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are not just good things that God gives. They're the purchase of the Saviour's blood. And then a further reflection, sadder than these, how base then, how low in the light of this amazing mercy does our sin appear? He uses an illustration. A Christian man helped a very poor neighbour of his again and again. And yet when the, uh, the officers of that city were out searching after the Protestant Christian, the neighbour who had been helped betrayed his Christian friend for the sake of the reward. Spurgeon says that's brutal that someone under so much obligation should become a traitor. And yet it was only a neighbour. Your case is worse if you're a believer, for you're a friend and more, professed to be a child of God in union with Christ. And yet have you been a traitor to Jesus? O oh, sweet Lord of my heart and monarch of my soul, with precious blood hast thou sealed me as thine own, and fool that I am, that I should cast my eyes on other beauties. Beauties, did I call them? other shams, other painted Jezebels, wretch that I am to wander thus in search of vain delights, to seek after earthly joys, to set my soul on earthly loves and to let my Lord and Saviour go. Again, Spurgeon wants us to understand that if we have the, the depth of the sense of these blessings, then 
anything that that sets them aside devalues them in in our eyes anything to which we turn other than these in the vain imagination that something is better and purer and sweeter is a criminal act against god if god has so dealt with us should we not be delighted with these mercies and turn to nothing else and now beloved the practical result he says if what i've said be carried out will be most blessed but to push it home i would say and here's a typical application what is there that any of us can do this morning for christ it's like romans 12:1 and 2 is scorched into spurgeon's soul in the light of the mercies we've received what does it mean for me to be a living sacrifice holy acceptable to god what is my reasonable service and it's a proper response that's not just spurgeon the activist or spurgeon the whip cracker that's spurgeon the christian saying if this is what god has done for me what is the proper return that i give to him you might say well i can't do this i can't do that but can you speak a good word for him can you go to the school or to the street or to the prayer meeting or to the bible class and speak to someone about his soul can you paint your master in lovely hues so that one heart shall be enchanted with him that he might accept what you shall try to do spurgeon says do what you can in the light of what he has done for you you're not paying off a debt so much you're not you're not trying to make up for what you've been given you're simply responding and expressing responding to and expressing the goodness and mercy of a god who saves ah beloved he says christ will take of thee anything that comes from thy heart whatever the gift may be however feeble and weak and insignificant it may seem to others it shall be rich and comely to him if it cometh from thy heart thou owest all to him what wilt thou render to him what wilt thou do more than others here's his point again not to earn anything or seek a reward but simply because he has loved you love him and serve him in return god give thee to give the ready answer he says the acceptable answer and may he accept it for jesus sake and he closes with this portion of a hymn come naked and adorn your souls in robes prepared by god wrought by the labors of his son and died in his own blood great god the treasures of thy love are everlasting mines deep as our helpless miseries are and boundless as our sins the happy gates of gospel grace stand open night and day lord we are come to seek supplies and drive our wants away and if you want to read that back into the sermon as a whole you think of the the poetic imagery and the poetic language that that we're accustomed to and appreciate in our hymnody spurgeon simply tried to do that with his with his passage from ezekiel with his sermon as a whole it's it's that poetic sense in prose it's the the imagination of his soul taken up with the good things of god in christ and he's brought it to bear upon us that we might know what we've received that we might fear and hate all that would take us away from it and that we might delight ourselves in god and so serve him willingly and readily because we are privileged people i hope that's a blessing to you i hope that it's been instructive uh, as well as uh, heartwarming next week god willing 
We'll be reading sermons 815 to 821, and our featured sermon will be 818, which is the Pleiades and Orion from Job chapter 38 and verse 31. So please do come back and join us on that occasion. We'd love to have you. We trust it's a blessing to you. Uh, You can uh, find us on various apps. Please do recommend us to others if you're benefiting from these. We want other people not so much to learn about Spurgeon, but to learn about Christ from a man who knew how to preach him. So please do leave us a a review or subscribe. Uh, Spread the word if you would. And you can find us on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon or you can find us at mediagratii.org on their podcasts page. Thank you once again, and may God indeed bless us with these riches in Christ Jesus.